Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Galloway Law Podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. Mark Kendi is a professor of law at Drake Law School. He is the director of the Drake Constitutional Law Center and is the James Madison Chair in Constitutional Law. This is his third time on the podcast. In our first episode, we discussed a bit about constitutional law as a whole and how different constitutions are interpreted, particularly in the United States. In our second podcast we did together, we did a brief overview to the Bill of Rights, and that was probably our most popular podcast yet in the, in the law podcast as a whole, because it gave everybody a general idea of what they should know as citizens of the United States about their rights, and it's something that they can use in their day-to-day lives. In this episode, we discuss Professor Kendi's book, Constitutional Rights in Two Worlds, South Africa and United States. Professor Kendi spent time in South Africa shortly after their constitution was written in the 90s, and he has quite a few interesting insights about that time and about the constitutional law in both nations. So if you find this interview interesting, please subscribe and share with a friend and check out the other two podcasts we did together. And now to the interview. I'd like to start by having you provide a little bit of context by discussing a bit about your time in South Africa and how that formed your interest in constitutional law, particularly there. Sure. So I was in South Africa in the year 2000. That was four years after they adopted a new constitution. And they based their new constitution on a survey of what they thought was the best possible uh, parts of a constitution you could create by looking at constitutions all over the world. So it was great to be there at that point in time because, in a sense, I got to see what they thought was the best possible constitution in the world to draft. It was based on all these uh, other constitutions and some things they didn't accept. And then I got to meet with a lot of the people who were involved in, in drafting and framing the constitution and talk to them and even go to the constitutional court there, so which was a new court. So it was really exciting and had a big influence on me. Right. Was there a point before, right before you wrote the book that you realized there was enough constitutional law history in post-apartheid that you, there was a book there to be written? Yeah. It took um, a while, obviously, for their court to start issuing decisions. And when their court issued decisions, they actually, very early on, issued decisions that were almost like a compilation of case law from other countries because they had no human rights case law under apartheid. So a lot of their early decisions read like encyclopedias of the best things they could pick from other countries that fit with their constitution, which they also in part drafted based on what other countries did. And yeah, by the time my book was done, uh, which was to around 2009, You know, their court had been functioning then uh, even before uh, even before the official constitution was enacted. So it had been functioning for about 15 years. So there was plenty of case law in almost every area, free speech, freedom of religion, all those different areas. And then my favorite area was socioeconomic rights, which is something we don't really have in the U.S. Constitution. So I got to write about that also. Right. The so it mentions the Constitution. Uh, directs the, them to look at foreign law when interpreting for the Bill of Rights. Was it, so that, that might have partly been out of necessity, right. just based on nothing to go by. What, what would our Constitution or our Supreme Court look like 
if that was a directive to look at foreign law, how would that change it most significantly? So you probably may know this, but there are uh, disputes that have occurred on our court in which Justices Kennedy, for example, and Justice Breyer over the years have looked to foreign law, and then uh, they tend to be more liberal, and the justices who tend to be more conservative, who at the time were people like Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, said that's inappropriate. You shouldn't do that. You know, it's a U.S. Constitution, so you should just look at our case law. If Kennedy and Breyer had consistently prevailed, um, and they did prevail in some cases, uh, our case law would probably be much more liberal. Mm -hmm. It would be what you might call more progressive, because I think foreign case law in a number of areas is more progressive than ours, not in every area, but in a lot of areas related to human rights. Right. So Cass Sunstein was your former professor, is that correct? Yes. And so that quote he had really stood out about it being the uh, the most admirable constitution in the history of the world. So for a number of so one of the main factors being because they took so much from other all right, the best parts. Right. Right. I think I think he basically thought after reading it, and actually he initially had some concerns about the socioeconomic rights provisions, but as they evolved over time, he was really impressed with how the court decided cases in that area. And then, yeah, by, uh, by the time it had gotten going, he really did think it was the most carefully drafted constitution in the world and the best drafted because it, it drew a lot from Canada, it drew from Germany, it looked at the United States. It actually didn't draw as much from the United States, but for South Africa, they needed a constitution that was progressive and transformative because they, the whole point was to try to overcome the legacy of apartheid. Right. So that's a very important purpose. And he thought, you know, they did an excellent job. And even today, scholars think that while the political system there may not work perfectly, the constitution as drafted is really impressive. And a lot of other countries look to their constitution. Right. So what were some of the factors that facilitated, as the, as the introduction mentions, South Africa's relatively peaceful transition to the multiracial democracy. So it was peaceful in the sense that there wasn't a full-blown revolutionary right. war. Right, yeah. There was a lot of violence, but it wasn't a revolutionary war, and the violence might be viewed by some as paradoxical. So you might have thought the violence was white and black, and certainly the white apartheid authorities did for years try to suppress blacks and did act violently and murder some, and there were some horrible things that happened. But um, during the transition, actually, some of the uh, main violence occurred between different groups on the, the black side who were fighting over power, but also the white apartheid government stoked the uh, flames of violence and tried to sort of get the black groups to fight each other. So the apartheid white government is kind of to blame. But the, the miracle was that you did have a country in which whites oppressed blacks for so many years. And in the end, um, I think the reason you didn't have a violent uprising is whites who were in power eventually saw that, uh, you know, they weren't going to prevail in the long run. The numbers just weren't in their interest. Uh, they saw someone they felt they could bargain with, who was Nelson Mandela and parts of the ANC. And Mandela was uh, a statesman of the highest caliber who very much did not want to chase the whites out of the country or do anything to, 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 to injure them or hurt them. 
And then they also had, lastly, something called a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was very important in enabling some issues to be resolved about what had occurred under apartheid, and that made a peaceful transition more possible. Right. So this is the South African Bill of Rights on your wall here, and you can just see that it's, just by looking at it, it's much more extensive than ours. Uh, what are some of the other main differences between our and their Bill of Rights? Well, theirs is just much more specific, and it's specific and it covers more rights. So, you know, we have, for example, an equal protection clause, but they have a clause in their constitution that guarantees equality and that specifies the various groups uh, and the kinds of equality that have to be protected. You can't discriminate on the basis of race, right. gender, sexual orientation. So they have all those things specified, whereas ours just is very general. It just refers to equal protection. And then they also have provisions that go way beyond anything in our Constitution. So they provide rights for children, rights for labor unions, socioeconomic rights. So in that sense, you have a combination of much more specificity in the areas where we do both have rights, and then you have rights in their constitution that go way beyond anything we have. Right, right. And, okay, so my next question was that, back to the interpretation as far as the, their constitution providing ways to interpret. And if our constitution had done that, it may have, what do you think have led to less this debate between the originalists and living constitutionalists would provide more one side or the other? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the important thing to understand about our constitution is just historically where it came about. It was so extraordinarily revolutionary at the time because so many governments throughout the world had been basically dictatorships or monarchies. So the mere fact that we were establishing a republic in which there was representative government, that was really radical, and that we were going to have courts, and that they would perhaps be able to do some pretty significant things. That was pretty radical. So it would have been great had they also gone into more detail and, let's say, instructed the courts a little bit in retrospect. But we have to sort of understand that what they did already was so radical and extraordinary at the time. And there was also the issue of buy-in. You know, the more specific you try to get, then the more people you might lose. So sometimes you have right. to keep things general and let things kind of develop historically. And I think that's part of what the framers did with our constitution was they put in some very general terms and general words and tried to avoid being too specific in the hopes that history would allow it to evolve, the democracy would work, it would kind of work itself out for the most part. That's one area, though, where the dispute still continues. Right, right. And it seems unlikely we'll ever get to the point where they develop a coherent way that everybody agrees on to start interpreting it. Yeah, I mean, the only way that's going to happen is if, you know, you have a president or a, a series of presidents who, you know, are all from one party and then appoint people right. who are justices who all share the views you know, whether it's conservative or liberal. Um, some people would argue our court right now is, is pretty darn conservative, but, you know, th that would certainly not be fair to say the, the court has agreed on taking a conservative approach because you have, you have four justices on the court who most people would say are pretty liberal. Right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, and so we, I think last time we talked about South Africa's court having 12-year term limits, is that correct, for justices? Yes. 
is are there any other significant differences between the structure of their court versus our court? The selection process is, is very different. They have a equivalent of a commission of about 20 people who are given nominations of people who might serve on the court. They narrow the number down. The commission is made up of representatives of the different political parties, lawyers, leaders in civil society, people like that. And then what the commission does is it holds interviews with pretty much all of the potential nominees who've made the first cut. And then it narrows the number of uh, candidates down to three. And then it forwards three names to the president. And the president chooses one person. So some might argue it's a much less political process in that, you know, the way we do things is we have these hearings in front of the Senate and... You know, if one party is in control uh, of the Senate and the presidency, you know, they're pretty much going to have their way. If there's a a conflict between who's in charge, there's going to be a big fight. And the way they've organized it is, uh, irregardless of what party the president is from, there will be three nominations forwarded absent something extraordinary, which has never happened. There's never been, in my, to my knowledge, any situation where the, the process has stopped, for example. Right. Is it, it seems unlikely that we'd ever agree to adopt a process like that, or do you think it'd ever possibly get to a point where we'd feel like that was a necessary process? Well, Iowa and some other states have uh, commission systems that are not quite like South Africa's, and they they existed before South Africa's. So some states do have uh, some variations on commissions. And, uh, you know, but in terms of the, the national government, it seems right now, given the polarization that exists and the what I think is fairly bitter disagreements between the sides about uh, judicial nominations, that, that there would be any consensus other than I think actually a lot of people don't think the current system works ideally, but that's a whole separate game from them being able to agree on an alternative when, you know, the alternative might not work out in their political favor, for example. Right, right. So back to South Africa and the authors of the Constitution, can you talk a little bit about their backgrounds and how that affected the final product of the Constitution? Well, they're they're just, it's really complicated in terms of the authors. So um, the African National Congress is the predominant important political party. And they were Nelson Mandela's political party, even though a lot of the leaders of the party were in prison for many years. So for a long time, actually, they weren't sure they wanted a a Bill of Rights because they thought the Bill of Rights actually, and this is sort of interesting, might end up being used mainly by whites who would have been the minority group. And Bills of Rights are meant to guarantee support for minority groups. But uh, the, the, the long and short of it is that there were a lot of different political parties, the African National Congress, the governing national party, which was a, a white party, um, various groups of other parties that negotiated for a very long time. And the negotiations started among what you might consider to be the elites. In other words, they actually had two constitutions. The uh, Elite members of the of the parties and other groups created an interim constitution, which then set a framework up 
for establishing a final constitution. And the framework it set up was that it was going to create a legislature called the, uh, the Assembly, and the Assembly was going to double as not just a legislative body, but it was also going to be charged with creating a final constitution. Okay. So that Assembly had, had people from all sorts of different parties, and then, of course, there were different people who were the leaders of the parties who played more significant roles than others. There were experts. So some of the members of the Constitutional Court you know, were, before they became constitutional court members, involved in drafting right. the Constitution. So, And there were experts from other countries. There were conferences held in places like New York City, at Columbia Law School. There was a major conference. In Germany, there were conferences. There were experts from all over the world. There was a very important Canadian scholar who actually played a significant role. Even the South African Communist Party played a significant role in the creating of the Constitution. So it was a massive process. And then lastly, they did a lot to try to get public involvement. So they had all sorts of campaigns in the countrysides and in the more rural areas to try to get people uh, to voice their concerns about what should be in the document. And those were pretty uh, successful compared to some other countries. That's interesting. Do you think this strategy of it being incredibly extensive in the research is something we'd see more countries adopt in the future? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, um, countries that are operating in a way that is functional in terms of their government can do stuff like that and try to figure out what's best. You know, the problem is so many countries, even, you know, if they get to the point of changing government, it occurs under circumstances that are really harsh. And then, you know, uh, the the constitution they come up with is is not necessarily based on as much expertise as it might be political power, even if the country's becoming more democratic. So, but, you know, certainly it's great. And there are plenty of countries that have, when they drafted constitutions, tried to bring in experts and consultants. Most of the Eastern European countries that left the Soviet bloc, you know, tried to do some variation of that, although things there are getting a bit more complicated now because some of those countries are becoming less democratic as time goes on. Right. So now that it's been about a decade since you wrote the book, if you were to add a couple chapters to it now, what would be some of the things that you would cover? So I think I'd write a more pessimistic book because there's been a lot of corruption in the country. And in fact, one of the presidents of the country had to leave office in part because he was so corrupt and he's now, uh, I think, under criminal charges. So I might be a bit more pessimistic in that there was... Uh, uh, an increase in corruption that hasn't gone away. Um, And there's still a a problem with crime in the country. And the African National Congress is dominant. But even today in the New York Times, literally today, and in next week's New Yorker, there are articles about the level of corruption in South Africa. So I might be more pessimistic only in the sense of saying that a good democracy really can't work if the governing party can always stay in control and can do so in part because people are providing it with money under the table. So in that sense, I might be more pessimistic and and wish that in some ways the Constitution could be altered to sort of have even stronger mechanisms to somehow prevent that and to make sure that elections are are as fair as possible. Um, I, th- I don't know if I'd add that many more, many more chapters. There's a ton of case law, though, since I wrote the book 
about the power of the constitutional court to step in and try to stop the corruption, which is something courts don't normally do. You know, courts are often the places where prosecutors go and, um, you know, to, to try to do things. But but their constitutional court has really been probably um, deserving of maybe more praise. Unlike the, the government and the democracy, their constitutional court probably deserves even more praise because it has in the last 10 years, despite what's going on politically, tried to uh, and in several cases issued very important rulings that have shut down some of the corruption as best it could. Right. It mentions that at the beginning the Constitutional Court was pretty cautious for pragmatic reasons and that uh, it mentions Albie Sachs telling you about his philosophy of minimalist maximalism. Can you describe that whole, their, their thought process behind that and specifically that phrase? Sure. So I got lucky and got the chance to talk to a couple of the constitutional court justices, which I think is another difference in some ways in that I think their constitutional court wants to be and wanted to be at that time, especially open to the public and open to sort of even, you know, research uh, by scholars like me. And so basically several of the justices I talked to said, we're starting brand new. We have a clean slate, but we know we have this awful history of apartheid. We want to move the country with our decisions in a direction that enforces the different parts of our constitution, more equality, uh, more free speech, uh, more rights for children, let's say. But we want to proceed somewhat slowly because if we make a mistake, it's very hard to take back a mistake when the mistake is in the form of a court decision because the court decision counts as a precedent that could be used in the future. So we want to go a little bit slowly, and actually that displeased some of the more, whatever you want to call them, uh, left-wing politicians who wanted the court to move more quickly. But they, they, they wanted to be cautious, not make mistakes, because the mistakes would have a life of their own. And then in terms of minimalist maximalism, uh, Albie Sachs was a justice on the court, a real heroic uh, person. He went through an assassination attempt when he was um, with the African National Congress during the period where they were fighting apartheid. And his basic view, though, once he became a member of the court was there are going to be certain cases where we have to be maximalist, meaning we really have to decide big issues in big ways. And and definitely sort of support groups that were historically disadvantaged. But we can't do that too often, because if we do it all the time, we actually diminish the power of the legislative branch and the democratic process to be the ones that make a lot of the important decisions, because mm -hmm. we're a court, we're not uh, the democratic branch. So his view, and that was this term he used, minimalist maximalism, you know, I always thought what he meant by that is, there are some situations where we have to go all in. We have to issue really significant big decisions. But we want to be careful about that because if we do that too often, then the democratic branch won't be the one that starts to build up its muscles and starts to be the one that enforces the rights. And you're better off if your legislature is enforcing the rights provisions than if we as a court have to be brought in to do that. Right. So on the topic of the justice being very open and transparent and open to discuss topics. I think one of the, I think our first podcast we did, we talked about one way to remedy 
one possible way to remedy the polarization in the court was to make the proceedings more transparent and have the public be a little more, uh, make it a little clearer to them what's happening. What do the court proceedings look like in South Africa? Are they more transparent on that level? I think they are in certain respects. So very early on, they decided to, before any case was being argued, issue press releases that kind of summarized to the issues that would be discussed and use plain English. In other words, use easy to understand non-legalese in terms of describing the cases so that the journalists could understand it if they weren't lawyers. And then after they decide cases, they issue summaries. And again, our court also issues summaries, but their summaries, I think, were a little less technical and again, geared more for the public to be able to understand and for journalists to understand. Um, they have on occasion allowed uh, cameras in the courtroom to film certain things, but I think somewhat like our court, this is an interesting parallel, um, neither court, ours or theirs, really allows television cameras to have the proceedings. But one of the biggest things they did was design a a courthouse, if you want to call it that. The Constitutional Court building is is really dramatic. It's built, and you, and you may be familiar with this, it's built on the grounds of what used to be a prison. And the prison, it's the only prison in the world that at different times, it actually held Nelson Mandela as a prisoner, and then earlier Mahatma Gandhi. Because Gandhi, before he went back to India, uh, was a South African lawyer. And so they wanted to build their court on top of a prison to symbolize that we are now building this new free system. And so it's a simply uh, stunning uh, piece of architecture you can see online. And one of the things it tries to do, it has a bunch of symbolism. It, it is mostly made of glass. And so unlike our court, which is you know very, very big and has these huge kind of almost Greek-Roman-type columns and seems to project the law as something sort of almost as superhuman. They um, tried to build their court with glass to symbolize openness and to also not make it too tall to symbolize that this is something that is meant to represent and to, to, to care for the rights of all human beings as opposed to sort of what you might call what I think of as our very majestic court, their court is kind of more designed to be a people's court. If you go into the actual courtroom, uh, each of the justices has a, a chair, and the chairs usually have rugs that are traditionally African-designed rugs that are, again, meant to symbolize the culture. So, you know, their court doesn't uh, do everything out in the open. You know, they don't write their opinions out in the open. They don't televise things. But symbolically, they've tried to make their court kind of more of a people's court than ours. Whether that's successful or not, you know, I guess you can have your own opinion. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time today. Sure, no problem. If you'd like to learn more about Professor Kendi's work, you can visit the link in the description below. Thanks for listening.